Our passage this morning is Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. If, uh, like many of you, you're visiting with us this morning, we've come to the very end of a series looking at the book of Malachi. We pray that the Lord would bless the hearing of his word this morning, even if you haven't been with us in the prior weeks. If you want to follow along in the Bibles there in your seats, that's page 803. Malachi has been sent to speak to God's people. They returned from exile, and it's not as glorious and exciting as they expected. The temple is not what they anticipated. Their power and prestige, not what they had hoped for. And yet God says there are some deeper issues. And he comes now to the conclusion of the oracle through his servant Malachi. Malachi 4, 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Having just come from a week set aside for us to pay attention to gratitude and give thanks to God, let me say I am thankful for all of you that are gathered this morning. I'm thankful for the privilege to open God's word. So thank you for being here, that we might be blessed together in God's word. Let me ask a blessing on our time. Lord, we've heard these few short verses that come at the end of your message for your people. We pray, Lord, that we would receive it as such. Your word to your people for our good. Would you accompany our study of your word by your spirit, teaching us, convicting us, transforming us. Lord, would all I, would all I have to say be to the glory of you and to the help of your people. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Are you ready? It's a question we often get on the verge of something new or something exciting or important. Maybe a parent to a child as they're about to take their hands off the back of the bicycle for them to ride on their own the first time. Or when you're about to make debut of a new performance. Or before graduation, a move or a wedding. I'm just going to turn this off. It seems to be uh, causing issues. Are you ready? And when that question's asked, sometimes it's just polite. It's really just a way to say, how are you feeling, right? Are, are you feeling ready? Are you feeling good about it? But we ask that because we know these moments can be pivotal. They're pivotal because we're often not prepared for them or because we've done so much work of preparation up to that moment. We have coaches to prepare us for the big game directors for the choral performance, guidance counselors to help us choose a job, parents and friends and family to help prepare us for that great journey of marriage. They want us to be ready for those big and important moments. As we've been walking through the book of Malachi, we've come to see a people that aren't ready. They've been anticipating restoration. 
They've been anticipating the presence of God and the establishment of God's people in great victory, in great comfort, in great prosperity, but they're not experiencing it. They aren't ready for the full restoration. And they're not ready because there's been many areas of neglect in their devotion to God. They haven't been worshiping Him aright with their offerings. They haven't been worshiping Him aright with their finances. They haven't been honoring Him in their marriages. They're not ready for God to come back and establish a perfectly holy and perfectly just kingdom. You'll notice the Lord doesn't even ask in the passage if they're ready. He knows that they're not. Throughout the prophetic message, he has revealed to them their dysfunction and their sin as they are waiting and expecting restoration. God wants them, though, to be ready. And so as this message from Malachi, God's word to his people, comes to an end, as they have been warned that the great day of the Lord is coming, a day of judgment, but a day of victory for the righteous, in which the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. He wants them to be ready for that. And so what does God do? He gives them the words that they need, the instructions that they need, the work that they need in order to be ready for that day. Even if you're here this morning and you're not so sure about the Bible or God, I imagine you are probably waiting and longing for a better day. The dawn of a new day in which there is justice or health or wholeness, fruitfulness. Maybe just a day when there aren't so many bad things in the news and in your own life. Malachi speaks to the promise of such a day. That God has such a day and it will come when he comes to make all things right and new. But such a new day requires a new people who will not spoil that new day, that new kingdom, that new world with sin and evil and wickedness. So in order for us to be ready for that day, he needs to prepare us. Malachi speaks to a people who need to prepare as they're waiting for that day. How can we, as we await that day, prepare? I think we can sum up Malachi's message through three R's. Forgive the alliteration. But we can await the day of the Lord and be ready through remembering, through repenting, and through reconciling. As Malachi comes to the conclusion of God's message for his people, verse 4 it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. He calls them to remember to remember the rules, to remember the covenant obligations. Now, on one hand, this is a call to obedience, to obey the law, to obey the rules and the statutes that God's servant Moses had instructed Israel. The concept of remembrance in the Old Testament is never just bare recollection. It's action taken in light of history or in light of relationship. We see this in Exodus chapter 2. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. They cry out in grief. God remembers, hears their cry and remembers them. And that's not just a mental action for God. First of all, God doesn't forget. 
But the language there is that God, according to his covenant promises, in remembering those promises, takes action to deliver them. And so the call to remember here is not like remembering the times tables or the capitals of all the states that we had to learn in elementary school. It's a call to obey what God has said. And yet, even as Malachi is absolutely calling them to obey. In fact, he's been doing that through the whole of the letter. He's been exposing to them the fact that they think that they're obeying and they're not. They think they're obeying and yet they're offering uh, blemished sacrifices. The priests are changing the laws of God so that they can fatten and feed themselves. They are distorting God's plan for marriage. They are offering little to God and hoping to reap much. He wants them to obey. But even as he calls them to obedience, he does so in the context of the whole message of the prophetic oracle. And the oracle, the message of Malachi starts in chapter 1, verse 2, if you weren't here or you don't remember, with the words, I have loved you. The call to remember the rules and laws and statutes of God through the servant Moses is a call to walk in relationship with a God who has called a people to himself that they would be his beloved and treasured possession. God called Abraham in order to bless him and make him a blessing. God called his people out of captivity in Egypt that they could know him and worship him as God prepared to give them the Ten Commandments, the structure of the covenant. God did so saying that he delivered them out of captivity so that they could be a treasured possession to himself. Just a few verses earlier in chapter 3, verse 17, as the great day of the Lord is anticipated, these same people were reminded that they were called to be a treasured possession. And so to remember the rules and the statutes of God is first of all to remember the source of those rules and laws. They didn't come from Moses. They were given through God's servant, Moses. We receive God's commandments for our lives because God has taken initiative to prepare a people for himself, a people who would find in him rest, a people who would find in him plenty, a people who were prepared to walk in relationship with him because he gave them laws, because we're prone to wander, we are prone to hurt ourselves and hurt others. We don't know what true holiness and justice and goodness looks like. And so he gives us by his grace these rules so that we can know justice isn't what your neighbor thinks. Justice isn't getting what you think you deserve. Justice and righteousness and holiness looks like what I say it is. The call to remember the commandments start with remembering the one who gave them. To remember the rules that God has given is to remember God's law in totality. Notice here it says, to remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules. Using this language, Malachi is trying to discuss the whole panorama of God's instruction for his people. That we can't claim to say, well, God, I'm obeying you over here, so I don't need to worry about this over here. Kids, you don't have to answer, but if your parents tell you to clean up your room and you've made your bed and you've put your clothes away, but your Legos are still spread on the floor, have you cleaned your room? No. If your parents 
uh, pay some of their taxes, but not all of the taxes, is the government going to say, well, that's okay, you paid some of them? No. Real obedience is full obedience. God calls his people to obey him with all of their life because God wants to love us fully and for us to fully enjoy that love. And we can't be wholly his if we say this part of my life belongs to me and not to you. The call to remember the law of God is a call to remember the source of that covenant relationship, to obey it in its totality, but then, of course, to obey it. The response to a God who wants to prepare us for a better way, who wants to give us a promised land, who wants to give us rest and fruitfulness, to use us to be a blessing, means we need to walk in the ways that he's given us, to actually obey. Now, here's the thing about God's covenant law, though. We we might first and foremost go to the Ten Commandments, and that's appropriate. Do this, and don't do this. And there's many rules and statutes about what we're called to do and not to do. But that's not the totality of the law. Part of the law, and part of the law that they've neglected in Malachi, is the provision to make offerings to God for the handling of their sin. That as God's people would obey, they would see their own lack of obedience all the more clearly, and yet see God's provision in the sacrificial system. That to obey God's law is to see our need and see God's provision at the same time. The call to prepare to be God's people comes by living like God's people. By acknowledging that God has called us to himself in covenant. He has given us a way of life in which we might show that he is superior and that we are most blessed when we are most in line with him. And then in seeing when we don't live up to that law, how he's made a way for us. So Malachi calls them to wait and be ready for the great day of the Lord by remembering the law of God. But if we are paying attention to what God's law says, we know that we don't fulfill it. And so the next thing that God's people are called to do to be ready, to be prepared, is to repent. Now there's not an overt commandment here in Malachi 4, 4 through 6 to repent. But repentance has been a theme throughout the letter. And note what it says here, that he's sending Elijah, why? Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This language of utter destruction, this would be a ban. God's covenant curse on the people. And and when would a covenant curse come? When God's people disobey. So why is he sending Elijah? So that they would turn from their sin to walk in obedience. So that they would not suffer the penalty for their sins. The sending of Elijah is a call to repent. As with all prophets... The sending of Elijah is an undeserved kindness. When the people wander and they find themselves enmeshed in sin, God sends prophets to warn them and call them back to himself in repentance. It's like those alarms on newer cars that when you start to to wander out of your lane, they start beeping at you and say, watch out, you're drifting. The prophets come over and over again and say, watch out, you're drifting again. 
You're drifting into disobedience. You're drifting into idolatry. You're drifting into injustice. You are drifting into apostasy. And God doesn't just step back and say, choose your own path. God graciously, who covenants with his people, says, I have, sending, I have sent prophets to you in the past. Malachi is one such prophet, even now warning them of their sin, and he will send yet another prophet in the form of Elijah to warn them against their sin. So their response should be to receive that grace through repentance, to acknowledge where they were denying God, where they were disobeying, and to turn to walk in the right way. Okay, God's going to send Elijah. He's going to remind them of the true God. God's people are going to repent. But I think if we gloss over that because we are pretty used to the idea of repentance, I think we might make light of the prophetic call here. The Lord promises to send Elijah. If you don't recall your Old Testament well, who, who was Elijah? Elijah was a prophet who came during the period of the kings when the people in the north, Israel, and the south, Judah, were divided. And it came during a particularly bad time under King Ahab and announced a drought, which the people in Malachi's time would be familiar with as they were struggling with a time when they were lacking in rain and fruitfulness. And Elijah confronted idolatry, particularly in the worship of Baal. He confronted Ahab, who was leading God's people astray into idolatry and to all kinds of wickedness. And even though he won a great battle on top of Mount Carmel, when he called down the Lord's fire upon the sacrifice there, yet the whole time he was attacked and pursued. Jezebel pursued him to kill him. He was consistently discouraged by the lack of people who seemed to respond to the truth that the Lord was God and not Baal. That's looking back to Elijah. Looking forward to Elijah, we know the fulfillment of this promise. From the very words of Jesus, who in Matthew 11 says, Elijah has come, referring to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, when he was asked if he was Elijah, said no, probably because God's people expected Elijah, who was taken up into heaven, to come back the same again. When Jesus says, this is Elijah, that is, he comes in the spirit of Elijah, the one who is to confront idolatry, to confront self-righteousness, and live a life similar to Elijah. How did God's people respond to John the Baptist? There were some that repented, right? but he was scorned and the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees came out to look at what he was doing without coming to true repentance. And then we know that King Herod, in the end, in response to John the Baptist speaking the truth, had him beheaded. For all the good news in the sending of a prophet to warn the people so that they could repent, there is a reality that we don't tend to to heed those warnings. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Sometimes we like to talk about what that verse means for election and free will. 
But that misses the larger context. It's a worthy conversation. But the larger context is Jesus has just spent all this time pointing the finger at the Pharisees and the chief religious people saying, Woe to you! You decorate the tombs of the prophets and you act just like those who put them to death. Jerusalem, and he, Jesus says, I will send more prophets and wise men and you will put them to death. He says, Jerusalem, you are a people who puts to death my prophets. How can we be ready to receive the mercy of God? How can we be ready to hear the good news of John the Baptist who came preparing the way, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world if we stop our ears to our need of repentance? If we don't allow ourselves to be convicted of sin that we might turn to God asking for forgiveness. How do you respond when a brother or sister in Christ or maybe even a spiritual mother or father or authority in your life points out sin. Do you in return condition on them and say, well, that guy, he's a zealot. Or she, she's a legalist. Or do we respond with the stab of, yeah, but. We won't be ready to repent. We won't be ready to apprehend the true mercy and kindness of God to receive the provision of sacrifice on our behalf if we don't listen to those that God sends to us to warn us of our sins so that we can repent. We aren't ready for the day of the Lord if we aren't ready to admit our need of the Lord. But when we do heed those warnings, when he does give us the gift of repentance, the conviction of sin, a softness of hearts to hear that, and we respond in repentance to God for his provision, it bears fruit, not just in us, but for others. And this is the last thing that we look at in terms of God's preparation of his people as they wait for the day of the Lord, the fruit of reconciliation. A few minutes ago I said that the word repent isn't in the passage but another word that is often used in the Old Testament for repentance is the word to turn. And it says here that as God's people will heed Elijah's call to repentance in his ministry, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. The heeding of the Elijah figure who calls the people back to the right worship of God in obedience will be demonstrated in their hearts being turned to one another. Now, first of all, for God to speak through Malachi of a turning, needs to speak to the fact that there is already a heart orientation within us that's not towards one another. That if the fruit of Elijah's ministry is that the hearts of the children are turned to the fathers and the fathers to the children, there has to be acknowledgement that that's not their natural predisposition. That's not how God's people are living. Sin is self-centered and selfish. Yet God's people are never envisioned merely as individuals in isolated relationship with God, but a community oriented toward God in love and thereby in love for one another. So if God's people heed God's servants to prepare them for the coming of the Lord, that will be marked in a turning towards one another. Now this truly would be taken up in the concern for others in the great 
the second great commandment, to love one another, to love your neighbor as yourself. Yet I think Malachi is speaking even more so than just getting along with others. Malachi has been calling them to remember the laws of the covenant administered through the servant Moses. And at the heart of that covenant relationship with God, in the Old Testament we find the Shema. In Deuteronomy 6.4, The Lord is one. Therefore love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your might. This was the context of how God's people were supposed to live with God. It was the context of the call not to walk in disobedience as future generations, but to teach your children. The children were supposed to come to understand. So when God's people said, the Lord your God is one, the next verses say God's people were supposed to talk about this, to talk about God's rules and statutes, to teach them as they walked and when they got up and when they sat down. And the result of this was that the children, as they rose up, were supposed to ask, what is the significance of these rules and statutes? And the parents were supposed to say, these are the ways that God has covenanted to be in relationship to us. The, the singular reality that the Lord is God was supposed to bind the community together. And yet so many times in the history of God's people, covenant dysfunction was foreshadowed by relationships with regard to the prior generation. You see this with with Rehoboam. His father, King Solomon, was wise and sought to follow after him. And so what does Rehoboam do? He turns his back on the advice of his father's generation. And yet also we see that there are children's generations who have their teeth set on edge because of the sour grapes of their parents. Because their parents had disobeyed, it led them astray. And so the heart's of the parents are set against the children, the hearts of the children set against them. This is a picture of covenant dysfunction. And for God's people at this moment, as they're saying, we're not giving to the church because we're not financially successful. The temple can wait on us. I can't give a a spotless and without blemish offering because I need to build up my flock. It it seems like a good idea to to marry within the Lord, uh, but I'm going to divorce my wife of my youth so I I can get ahead. You notice that all these things that God's people are struggling with in the book of Malachi are, are sins of the moment as they focus on themselves. And yet to focus on themselves is not only to cut themselves off from covenant blessing, it's to set their children and their children's children on a course that will lead them further away from God. One cannot claim to be ready for the fulfillment for the reception of God's covenant promises if one is walking in isolation from the covenant community, if one is not conveying the promises to the next generation, if one is not helping the community walk in relationship with God. If we want to be ready for that great day of the Lord, we want others to be ready. I was a little bit shocked the other night when I was driving home from our Thanksgiving service listening to the radio, and it was an economics portion. This is where they talk about the Dow Jones and and how all the investments are going. And before he started giving the numbers, he said, as you get ready for Thanksgiving, please remember that you need to cook your turkeys to 165 degrees. And I'm thinking, what? Why are you you sharing this news with the people who want to know the numbers? Because 
So many Thanksgivings have been ruined by turkeys not cooked to 165 degrees. So many people have gotten ill, or at least are afraid of getting ill, that there's this need to pass on, hey, we want you to have a good Thanksgiving. If you're going to have a good Thanksgiving, be ready for that. Make sure your turkeys are well cooked. If a public radio station can have enough interest in the well-being of the listeners to make sure that they are properly prepared to enjoy Thanksgiving, how much more so God's covenant people should be interested in the well-being not just of themselves, but in the covenant community. Parents discipling their children and sharing the promises of the covenant. Teaching them the good news. Children pursuing obedience to their parents and blessing their parents and honoring them in the name of the Lord. Parents sharing the good news with children, children whose parents aren't walking with the Lord, sharing the good news with them. The covenant impact of God's word at work in his people is a turning beyond self to God and to God's people. We might ask, how is my life and my relationship with God not only impacting me, but impacting others? Is it helping others walk in a way that finds blessing in God? Or is my relationship with God such that the fruit born in relationship to others is only distance and disjunction? If your walk with God is only about you and what God's doing in your life and doing for you, and there's a lot more work of preparation that the Lord is seeking to do in your life. Readiness for the day of the Lord is seen in preparing others to be ready as well. So let me ask again, as I did at the start, are you ready? Are you ready for this day of the Lord when he comes to make all things right and good through the judgment of the wicked and the vindication of the righteous? If you're in the place of some of Malachi's hearers and you're looking at yourself and saying, I'm doing pretty good, there's probably a good chance that you're not ready. But this morning, if you are looking to Jesus, if your hope to be ready for that great day of the Lord is in Jesus, then however far short you fall in remembering the law, however meager your repentance, however struggling you are in your reconciliation, if your hope in that day is in Jesus, you're ready. Moses and Elijah are both mentioned in this passage. Moses, the great giver of the law. Elijah, the great miracle worker for the vindication of the name of the Lord. And yet, all of Moses and Elijah, all of the law and prophets, were merely preparing us for the coming of Jesus. The one who truly teaches us what God's law requires. Not just not murdering, but not hating our brothers in our hearts. He is the only one that fully kept God's law the totality of it, with love for God and full obedience. So that when we look at ourselves and say, we haven't obeyed God, we can look to him who has. And in seeing his love for God and love for others, we, as he works in our life, can be reconciled to others. The law and the prophets, Malachi prepares us for Jesus because only Jesus can prepare us for the day of the Lord. 
He is the one that came as the Lord, knowing that if he came in the moment of judgment, we would never be ready. So Jesus came born as an infant, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose again from the dead, so that though we ourselves could never be prepared, if we are in him, we are ready even now for the day of the Lord. I don't know if I'm ready for Christmas. But I invite you, as many of you think about all the things that you need to do to be ready for that day, to think about the way that the church is often prepared for that. In a time of self-reflection. And then honoring the time between the prophecy of Malachi and the arrival of Jesus to be waiting and reflecting and repenting. I invite you to prepare for the coming of Jesus at Christmas by preparing for his coming the second time. To do that, heeding his word, repenting where we fall short, and trusting in his work to reconcile us to God and to one another. Because I don't know if Christmas is coming. I don't know if tomorrow is coming for me or for you. But if you are in Christ, you can be ready. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming that you would prepare a people for yourself. Thank you for sending your prophets to warn us of our need for such a one to fulfill the law when we could not. O Lord, when you come to make all things ready, would we be ready in the name of Christ? We pray this asking for your help. In Christ's name, amen.